Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you this morning um, for this lovely, wonderful day. Lord, every day is a, is a new day where we have opportunity to bless you, to walk with you, to learn to love you more. Uh, Father, we remind you in your word that your mercies are new every morning and your faithfulness is great. So we thank you, Lord, for this new day. And we just pray as we turn to your word now as a, as a fellowship of believers that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds. Oh, Lord, fill us with godly thoughts, with spiritual things, with things that will transform, Lord, the way that we think, the way that we handle each situation and circumstance that we're confronted with in life. Uh, and Lord, we ask for your wisdom too. So Lord, just use this time now that we would grow as individuals and as a body of believers together. We thank you, Father. We can study and we can meet together so freely as this. Uh, Lord, all things come from you and it's of your own that we give you. The worship we've brought this morning, oh Lord, we pray was pleasing to your heart. Uh, Lord, as we lift our voices and now we just lift our hearts, uh, Lord, just in expectation of that which you will sow into our lives now. So we just give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, well, we're going to carry on in our study through the book of James. We're going to move into chapter 2 in just a moment. The importance uh, that James emphasizes is that we our creed is okay, but our conduct is more important. Uh, and there's a great little example that James will bring out this morning as we look at those ideas uh, and the idea that our belief is important it's important that we have a belief and are, are, are solid and sure in our belief but if it doesn't impact our behavior there's something lacking and then finally doctrine again is really good we need to know that god is that's one of the, the foundational aspects of faith uh, that we saw back in chapter 11 of hebrews but once again, that faith on its own, if it doesn't have works to accompany it, and James is really going to make that point as we look at this chapter this morning, uh, that faith on its own uh, is, is, is empty, it's shallow. So we're going to go on and we've said already that this is really a very practical epistle. It's designed for people that are living the Christian life. James is writing to believers, people that have put their faith and trust in Jesus. But the question was, OK, now what are you going to do with it? How are you going to live this life? And as we said that we looked in Hebrews, which gave us a great foundation as to the why we should believe, why we should have faith, the hope that we have, the inheritance that's awaiting us. But now the question is, OK, so how do we live? How do we go about doing this? What should we actually be doing in our lives as believers? What marks us as different from people in the world? And these are the kind of ideas and, and themes that James gives us. And once again, remember that James, this brother of Jesus, according to the flesh, uh, who'd grown up in a household with him, had seen Jesus, uh, had spoken to him probably hours upon end. Uh, and, and yet during Jesus' earthly ministry, James hadn't recognized and realized that Jesus was the Messiah. It was only after the resurrection that Jesus appears to James personally, as well as to the others, but a personal appearance to James to reveal himself. And from that point, James never looks back. He recognizes just the incredible person that he'd grown up with, uh, but now realizing just who he was. Very much, I guess, the, the Mary Magdalene experience in the garden. She speaks to the gardener who, perceives, who she perceives he is, and yet realizes eventually that that's Jesus, uh, as the veil is kind of lifted from her eyes. And it's really the testimony of so many of us that we were going along, maybe we'd heard about Jesus, may have even been to church, but there comes that point that we actually come to realize for ourselves who Jesus is. And really, from that point, there should be no looking back. That's the point, really, James is going to make. Now, last week, we talked very much expanding on the opening verses of chapter one, really from chapter from verse two to verse 18 of chapter one. It just deals with this issue of trials that we face as believers, those trials that the Lord allows that we may grow thereby. Uh, that we would be complete and lacking nothing. And then the second part of the, the opening section is dealing with these inward temptations. And these temptations, you know, once again, we can't just attribute them to the world. We can't blame the devil for these things. Uh, we need to understand that actually the, the temptations that affect us all, um, they actually come from within. That's what the point that James makes. And as we looked at this last time, 
We said that actually our, our brain is like a supercomputer, but as it is with computers, if you put garbage in, you get garbage out. That little kind of geeky uh, computer term, gigo, uh, garbage in, garbage out. Uh, and, you know, if we put rubbish into our brains or unhelpful things into our brain, then that's the thing our brain will naturally feed subconsciously into our mind and into our heart. They're the voices that we hear. You know, if we surround ourselves with ungodly influences, if we allow a lot of worldly things to worldly tv worldly music uh, worldly company it will influence and affect us and those ideas drop into our head so what we need to do and this is what paul says in the book of romans chapter 12 is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind in other words to change the direction of the flow so that the flow into our heart and our mind actually comes from god from god's word from fellowship with god's people from being reminded continually when we celebrate communion of the great sacrifice that christ made for us and then praying as well uh, those four things that we're told in acts uh, chapter two and so if we allow ourselves to be fed continually by spiritual things that will have a massive impact on our lives as we kind of move as we grow forward so really really important as we start to understand the, the mechanics of this some people refer to it as as biblical psychology as we go on, the remainder of the, the chapter really kind of deals with our response to the word of God. There's a great statement in chapter one, uh, speaking of the word of God, which we're actually told that the word of God can save us. Now, it's not just necessarily in terms of eternal salvation, of course, the written word is the, the part of the, the one and the same as the, the living word as Jesus Christ. But the word of God gives us instruction. It can save us from the, the challenges of this present time, the, the pressures that the world would throw at us. The word of God gives us the antidote, in a sense, to the virus that is the world uh, and sin and so on. So we saw that in the final part of chapter one. In chapter two, we're going to go and look at now the response to social distinctions the different classes we have in society. Uh, and we may tend to think that we're not like other cultures where they have very defined class systems in this country. Maybe we don't think we've got that, but actually as you start to look at it, we realise that we do. Uh, we have all sorts of challenges um, that we face because of the, the culture in which we've been brought up. So uh, the next one there is evidence of good works that must accompany faith. James is going to make that really clear. The works... Uh, have to be there in our lives as evidence that our faith is genuine we'll talk about that in a moment uh, then the importance of self-control uh, for a believer in chapter three which uh, lord willing we'll look at next time uh, and then our relationship to the world and then in chapter four and then finally chapter five it's really that foundation of prayer for a believer okay again these verses, these, these chapters, these uh, five chapters we're looking at, uh, we see James a number of times use nature to illustrate spiritual truths. Uh, about 30 times in five chapters he uses a, a practical example. It's a very practical book. James doesn't expect us to have a degree in theology to understand these things. He appeals to things that are going on around us and says, look, consider that. Well, that, that's how it is spiritually and, and so on. Uh, and again, we get this reference to uh, the law, the perfect law we've already seen reference to. We can see the royal law mentioned in this chapter and also the law of liberty. Again, James doesn't teach that his readers are under the law for salvation or as a rule of life, but rather that portions of the law are cited as instruction in righteousness for those who are under grace. And we see that really come out in this chapter. Just to remind you again, the, the word brethren we find 15 times. This is a very intensely personal letter as well. Faith 15 times also. Works is 13 times mentioned and then wisdom four times. And it's been said again that this is probably one of the most authoritarian letters in the New Testament. James gives us these continual instructions. He's not saying, you know, maybe you could consider this or maybe that. He's saying this is how you must live as a Christian. It's very, very clear uh, instructions. It's been said there's about 54 specific commands. Uh, the, the tenses in the, um, the, the Greek text, the imperatives that are there uh, in just 108 verses we have this. So. Okay, let's jump into to chapter two. Then let's look at the text uh, and see what we have there. So, just want to remind us of the previous 
verse of the first chapter where we ended because of course in the original there were no chapter breaks so one would have flown straight into the other and there is sometimes a danger that when we look at chapter breaks we tend to put a, a proper full stop at the end of the previous chapter and then begin the next chapter as if it's a totally new subject or topic and that, that's of course not not always helpful um the verse 27 of chapter one says pure religion and undefiled before god and the father is this to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, following straight on from that statement of keeping ourselves unspotted from the world, James is going to highlight one of the dangers that come from being in the world, and that is that we start to think in a worldly way. And this again picks up on that thing we've already been exploring. So he begins chapter 2, verse 1, by saying this, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Now, once again, we've said already this, this phrase brethren appears 15 times. Um, but actually, in this chapter alone, we have 26 references to brethren, to ye, to your, to thou. So it's a very personal, direct piece of writing by james to those that he's listening to this applies to his hearers so in the context this morning it applies to us this is a, a letter that is saying you must pay attention listen this is applicable to you as a christian and again the emphasis really is upon close personal examination paul encourages us in first corinthians 11 to examine ourselves Okay, and it's really important as believers that we actually look at ourselves. We we should do a, a regular health check of our own life spiritually. Are we growing? Are we maturing? You know, is there fruit to accompany the belief that we have? You know, is there evidence of the belief? And this is what James will will bring out as we go forward. Uh, I just thought this was fascinating and you can do with this what you will but um, over the years as you study scripture you become more and more sensitive to the details in the text um, and uh, I remember Chuck Misler once saying that over the years he's revised his view of scripture uh, a number of times and every time it was to take it more literally than he had previously there are no meaningless details in scripture there are no meaningless numbers in fact the scripture is very precise in its use of numbers uh, and also the idioms that are, are thereby uh, implied uh, numbers have different uh, ideas associated with them I'm sure you're familiar that, of course, the number seven has the idea of being complete. We see that in so many uh, examples in Scripture. But every, every number in Scripture is there with a meaning. Now, God or Jesus, the, the deity, I mentioned ten times in chapter two. You think, well, what, what, what reference is that? Well, I just thought that was interesting because ten is the number of the law. And it's going to be one of the themes that the underlying themes of this chapter. You know, what is our response to the law? Um, but ten is also... Uh, and of course, we have the Ten Commandments, which you can see that link. But but also, ten speaks of human government uh, from a biblical numerology perspective. Eventually, the final world government will be made of these ten kings, uh, and so on. So we see this idea, and I just I think implied there again is that we're not to forget the importance of the law of God. That's going to be one of the key things that will come out of this chapter, uh, and that God is on the throne he's still on his throne he still rules he still reigns and presides over all human government including over our hearts so that's the real how does this apply to us well we're going to be shown here how important the law is for us as believers and the fact that actually god is in complete control not only of the law but of our lives and we need to submit ourselves to him so there's some ideas uh i'll let you just play around with those if you want to but um we go on the the second part of this verse um we get this title that james uses now james nowhere makes mention of the fact that he was a brother of jesus he doesn't call that into the 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 the, the, the arena and say look you know i i've got some sort of special authority here because jesus was my brother therefore you must listen to me now james is very humble but he uses some expressions uh, of the lord and uh, this particular one here, he says, uh, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, the Lord of glory. Now, it's a very powerful and descriptive title. Interestingly, and again, just from a numbers point of view, uh, the Greek word there is this word uh, doxa. 
It occurs 168 times in the New Testament. Um, now, just out of interest, that's 24 times 7. Well, both 24 has biblical significance and, of course, 7 has significance. Um, this, this phrase, glory, effectively. Um, but it occurs in seven different forms. In the Greek is more descriptive than the English. And there's seven different forms of this. And the form that's used here is actually used 49 times, which is 7 times 7. So, again, uh, not making a big thing of it, but I just, I just see the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit behind this, just trying to um, give us instructions through these things um, and, and really this is just a quote here from uh, James Moffat he said this uh, the Christian religion is here called more explicitly uh, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the divine glory that, that's what Christianity is it's belief in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the divine glory and he says a striking term for Christ as the full manifestation of the divine presence and majesty and he goes on and says this, the Jews call this the Shekinah, that glory of God, the glory that filled the temple at the time of the dedication of tem the temple, where Solomon and the priests had to stop ministering. They had to get out of the temple. The glory was just overwhelming. The same glory that Israel saw in the wilderness as God uh, was with them, and the, that, the, the, the glory that was above the tabernacle. And we see a number of occasions in scripture this occurs. It's the same clothing that Adam and Eve were clothed with in the Garden of Eden, that glory, until of course they sinned, and then that glory had left them, the glory departed, and so on. So uh, Jesus is that glory, the glory of the Father. I think it's just a wonderful expression. Now, James says this, don't have the faith of our God, our Lord, our Savior, who is this Shekinah glory of God, with respect of persons or literally it's this faith in jesus is not compatible with bigotry or with favoritism that's just a kind of paraphrase of what james is trying to say here you know you cannot profess to follow christ who saved you while you were remember this is how we were dead in trespasses and sins that's what ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 tells us but we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel in Ephesians 2 verse 12. And also from the same verse, we're told that we were strangers and without hope. Well, that was our position. And so the challenge for us now, James is saying this, don't have respect of people. Don't look at certain people and perceive them as being better or more value to you or more worthy of your honor than others. Remember where you were. You were cast-offs in a sense you were people that weren't part of god's uh or the commonwealth of israel this incredible um work that god was doing of course with the intention of engrafting the gentiles in and again we're told we were strangers without hope we were we were write-offs in a sense um and god by his grace reached out to us while we were yet sinners we're told in the book of romans so we need to remember our own position we need to remember in a sense how low we were before we start to form opinions about other people so this is kind of the the underlying theme here of course you know and so we need to remember that we can't profess to follow christ who saved us and then alienate or hold in low esteem another who may appear to be wanting okay to be uh for whatever reason lacking in terms of uh their usefulness or or their um standing in society or whatever else i'm sure you're familiar with that account back in samuel when david was anointed uh, by samuel samuel turns up in bethlehem at the home of jesse you know jesse um uh, david's father and they call all of david's brothers and they all line them up and all these these brothers are looking very strong and, and macho and, and very fit and so on uh, david seemingly uh was uh, not as physically um impressive as his brothers were he was younger than they were uh, and we just read in verse six after um samuel kind of looking at these individuals thinking this must be the one that god wants to anoint as the next king of israel we read in verse six he came to pass that when they would come that he looked on eliab and said surely the lord's anointed is before him but the lord said unto samuel look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature because i have refused him for the lord sees not as man sees for man looks on the outward appearance but the lord looks on the heart a great lesson way 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 back there in the book of Samuel, that God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are above our thoughts and his ways above our ways. And we are now called to be like God. We're to called to emulate 
go to to be in a sense brothers of jesus and therefore to act in the same way that jesus acted and um, very much what we see in the tank and the uh the um sermon in the mat and the beatitudes is really a uh a script for how we should be living our lives through the grace of god and we'll come back to that in a while james carries on and says for if they come into your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel and they come in also a poor man in vile raiment let's just put that into today's today's kind of vernacular somebody comes in really well dressed and looking really smart somebody comes in looking a little bit unkempt not brushed their hair not shaved you know looking you know a bit of a mess you know the natural mind tends to say that the the one that's looking presentable is a better person that they have some in some way uh, they've achieved more or they're more successful that's that's just where the natural mind goes that's why we have that linkage from the previous chapter about being aware and being mindful of the things the world will throw at us and the way that the world will get us to formulate opinions verse three carries on and it says have you respect to him that wears the gay clothing of course that word has a different meaning today um, but of course it's meaning the kind of bright colors and looking you know very very you know very flash and say unto him uh, sit thou here in a good place and say to the poor stand thou here or sit under my footstool is james says are you not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts I mean, it's, it's a really simple statement but james is saying hang on a minute think about the way you view people your impression you know is so often determined by your first glance and as we've seen already from samuel we know nothing about the person from our outward uh, or the outward appearance of a person i find it quite amusing sometimes when i when i uh, back in the day when i used to go out to work rather than working from home as we all have to at the moment because of uh, coronavirus um when i used to go to work uh, most days i would wear now a suit and a tie uh, and obviously when it was cold i had my nice big kind of black coat on and things uh, overcoat over the top and, and it's fascinating how people either on the train or as you walk past even when you're looking smart and you're wearing a tie people often say oh good morning you know and there's that just general kind of uh, friendliness there um there was an occasion um a, a couple of months back now uh, not long after i started the job that i'm now doing and it was uh, i'd left to work a bit later in the evening and i was hungry so i went to a, a local cuisine to to take out some food and uh, some delicacy well it was actually a kebab but you know i'm trying to dress it up a bit um and, and i was uh, it was on a friday typically we don't wear our smart clothes we have kind of a dress down day um so i was just wearing jeans and a t-shirt with a kind of a hoodie over the top but it was a bit chilly so i pulled my hoodie up over my head uh, and I, I was sitting there on a, the bench on the platform and it was interesting how a number of people as though this is kind of probably about half seven in the evening people that were coming onto the platform and that's evening, they were all giving me this really wide berth i think they must have thought that i was some sort of tramp or whatever but it was interesting that the day before the same kind of people would have been greeting me or smiling or nodding all down to apparel all down to just simply the clothes i was wearing i was the same person but simply the way i was dressed now that's the reality that the world we live in we make so many assumptions based upon how people look and of course we have an advertising industry that tells us all the time that a person's worth is seen in the way that they dress you know the clothes maketh the man and so on that kind of idea this is what james is trying to get us to think about and saying no that's not true particularly when it comes to the church of jesus christ that's not how we assess somebody we don't base somebody's worth upon the way they look or their appearance and he says you know actually if you do that you're becoming judges of evil thoughts we're allowing that worldly mindset to dictate and the, the problem is let me just read you this quote from david guzik he says this we do well to remember that james wrote to a very partial age filled with prejudice and hatred based upon class ethnicity ethnicity nationality and religious background in the ancient world people were routinely and permanently categorized because they were jew or gentile slave or free rich or poor greek or barbarian or whatever so that's the culture that james is writing into but let us hold up because we don't want to just say well that was them because we have the same problems today james carries on hearken my beloved brethren have not god chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him now again how many of the prophets were of an exalted status 
You know, whom of the disciples were noblemen? I mean, just think about that for a second. You know, and are not most of the biblical characters rags to riches story? You know, God often takes, and throughout Scripture we see so many examples of those who were destitute, those who had nothing, who God raises up and places in positions of prominence. I mean, you, you think of people like Mordecai, for example, in the book of Esther, a great example of that. You know, but there's, there's so many that we could cite in Scripture. You know, but sadly, too much of the church puts great emphasis on wealth and prosperity and the idea that actually, if you are blessed of God, then you'll be wealthy, you'll be prosperous and so on. Interesting that the idea here, James, there seems to be almost an allusion um, to in Matthew 11, verse five, uh, where we read where Jesus said that the poor have the gospel preached to them. You know, so the gospel has gone out to the poor. And part of the reason for that is that they were respond, they were willing to respond to it. You know, they didn't have anything to lose. They weren't holding on to things of the world. Uh, Adam Clark makes this comment. He says, these believed on the Lord Jesus and found his salvation while the rich despised, neglected and persecuted him. Same idea. You know, those that had much in this world found it very hard to let go of those things. James tells us here that faith actually is of much greater value than worldly gain or worldly riches. Those things are transient. They're passing away. That, that's not of any eternal value whatsoever. I just want to read to you, of course, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but from Matthew 19, picking up verse 21, it says, Jesus said unto him, this of course was the rich young ruler, if thou will be perfect and go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor and thou, thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. This man was saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, sell everything, give it to the poor. It's a, a kind of one of those tumbleweed moments, as you can imagine this, this individual stopping and thinking, how am I going to respond to that? How do I answer that? Verse 22 carries on and says, But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And then Jesus said unto his disciples, I mean, just turning aside from the crowd, speaking directly to the disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. The, the reason is it's not that somebody who's rich is unable to be saved. It's far from, from that, that, to the contrary. Anybody of any class, of any social standing can be saved because salvation is not based upon your wealth or your ability or anything else. It's based upon grace. It's based upon the work of Jesus on the cross and it's simply accepting. And it doesn't matter what level you are, what status, what standing. But I had a good quote earlier and he just said this, it takes more wisdom to carry a full glass than one half empty. And that is in response to people who uh, ask the question, you know, why does God not allow everybody to be wealthy? Why doesn't he allow a lot of Christians to be rich? You know, it's often the case that a lot of Christians are not particularly uh, well off financially. They're not the, the, the elite of society with all the expensive, you know, um, trappings that the world uh, deems so important. And part of that is because the, the, the Christians understand the, the reality of those things. But actually, it's also that sometimes people can't be trusted with riches. They can't be trusted with wealth. You look how many people, how many celebrities, suddenly, or people that become celebrities, suddenly find fame and fortune, but they don't find happiness. You know, how many celebrity marriages end in divorce? You know, how many apparently successful, wealthy businessmen end up taking their own lives? You know, and you can dig, you can find all sorts of statistics on the Internet to show these things. But, you know, money doesn't buy you happiness. Success doesn't buy you happiness. You know, in fact, the, the more people have, the more they want. You know, if people have wealth, then they want to acquire power to go along with that. And then they want more wealth. And, you know, and it just becomes a vicious circle. And I'm sure that we've all been in situations where we've been in times of want and then you compare it to maybe a time where you've been a little bit more affluent, where you've had more. And you think about the blessings, the things you learned, the things you experienced uh, in those times of want. You know, very often people talk about, you know, your, your first house as being something very special because very often it's a little bit more meager. You don't have all the things that you have later in life. You're not able to afford them when you start off in your married lives. 
Um, uh, you know, but you also remember with fondness some of the, the lovely moments. You know, for the first six months of our married life, uh, Joy and I chose not to have a TV. Well, part of it was financial, but it was also that we just didn't want a, a TV. Six months we went without watching any TV. It was great. You know what we used to do? We used to talk to each other. I mean, not saying we don't now, but, you know, but there are things that come in as distractions. And sometimes when you have less, there's a lot of blessing that goes with that. The world has this great way of trying to convince us that having stuff will make us happy. Of course, it doesn't. <clears throat> in Luke chapter 1, Mary says this in the, the Magnificat. She says, He hath shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. Jesus also told a parable uh, later on in Luke's gospel you know, of a wedding and people were invited, but people made excuses because they, they were content with their life. They had this, they had that, they had you know, oxen, they were about to go, you know, all sorts of other things they were doing. You know, and eventually the call goes to the highways and the hedges uh, and that, that cry to compel people to come in. You know, and people that would respond because they had nothing else to, they had nothing to hold on to in this world. Well, that, that's the place that all Christians truly should be. James carries on in verse six, but you have despised the poor. He's saying this to his hearers. And truthfully, we are probably all guilty of this. You've despised the poor. He says, do not the rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by the which you are called? You think, actually, you, know, you think of how many wealthy people have no regard for God whatsoever. They don't need God. and In fact, they often speak very disparagingly of God educated people and so on often speak very disparagingly of those that have faith in god but the challenge here again that we shouldn't have that view towards people that on the surface don't seem to have as much you know and the reason people often show favoritism to the well-off is out of a misplaced sense of personal gain through association you know we think we're going to get something you know, you become a friend of somebody's because you think you can get something from them. That by associating with them, you may be brought into their social group or their position, or may, you may be viewed as they're viewed. You, you may respect them and, and so on. You know, conversely, the poor are often despised as they cannot benefit us in any way. And sadly, that is often our mindset. You know, and even as Christians, to say that doesn't affect us, we, we, we'd be lying. It does affect us. And the, the, the challenge here is to constantly be aware of these things. When you meet people, particularly for the first time, be very careful of how you form your opinion. You need to form, form an opinion from a godly standpoint. Remember those two sides are competing. You know, you've got the, the, the brain in the sense, which is the recipient of everything from the world. That's feeding into our heart and mind. On the other hand, you've got the spirit and that's feeding into to our heart and mind a godly standpoint and we need to move towards that god we need to allow the godly side to influence us and so on so <clears throat> the 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 problem that we have often with people that are not so well off is that not only do we think that they won't benefit us but we actually kind of think that they might cost us something it might involve us doing something it's a challenge to the status quo of our lives and so on and james says that's not the way it should be so again, James here brings the focus back onto Jesus. Let me just look at that verse again. Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? So again, James ends this by saying, think about Jesus. You know, Jesus is clothed in brilliant light, we're told in Revelation chapter 1. He's the express image of the Father, or the Shekinah glory of the Father, as we've already said. Hebrews 1 verse 3 reminds us of that. Psalm 50 tells us that the, the Lord owns a cattle on a thousand hills. There is no limit to his wealth and to his resource. These, these exceedingly great riches that are in Christ Jesus. You know, his city has got streets made of pure, transparent gold. I mean, the, the wealth, the, the, you can't estimate the value of the gold that is paving the streets of the New Jerusalem. The walls are made of jasper and gold, these precious stones and, and materials. And the foundations, again, made of precious gemstones. The gates, we're told, are of huge pearls. In Revelation 21, those are given to us descriptions there. So let me make it very clear. Jesus is not impressed with any human display of wealth. Whilst we may think it's impressive and the natural mind tends to, to gravitate towards looking at people that are wealthy and thinking, oh, isn't that great? I'd love to be like that. Really, spiritually, we need to realize that does not hold any 
credibility with God whatsoever. God is not looking at those things. God is looking at our hearts. He's looking at the inward stuff. And that's why the, the people of faith are highlighted in scripture as people of great wealth. <clears throat> we read in verse eight, if you fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, thou shall love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. It's saying treat other people as you would have them treat you. It's that old adage we're familiar with. You know, uh, at the close of the previous chapter, again, James alludes to the greatest commandment. We finished there last time. It's the verse that, Je that um, Adrian shared with us this morning as well. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength. And again, to love your neighbor as yourself. And James speaks of this royal law about loving our neighbors in the same way that we care and look after ourselves. And people may say, oh, I, I don't care about myself, you know. But, you know, there's a great test of that. You know, if we take a picture of us as a group of people, or I guarantee you this morning when you logged on to Teams, the first person you looked at was yourself. You wanted to just check how you were looking. It's a natural thing. We all tend to do it. You look at a photograph of a group of people, you all look to see how you're looking in the photograph were you smiling do you look okay you know do you, you know those kind of things so we do have a regard for ourselves even people that say they don't they do you know and, and that's the kind of regard we should show to other people we should be just as concerned about others about their welfare and so on and now james is expressly quoting this verse he alluded to it in the, the end of the previous chapter now he's actually quoting it uh, and speaking about this royal law as he puts it that if you love your neighbor well, the conclusion is you're going to be loving God because that's what God is asking us to do. And actually, if you love God, conversely, you're going to love your neighbor. So these things go hand in hand. They're all part of one and the same. Verse nine carries on. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced uh, of the law as transgressors. Now, this is very simple. You know, if we do show that partiality in judging, if we do look at the way that people are dressed or their outward apparel or their apparent wealth, you know, well, we're committing sin because we've been convicted by the law as transgressors is what this is telling us. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet in one point, offend in one point, he's guilty of all. You know, to be a lawbreaker, you don't have to break every single law. You only need to break one of the laws. And this is what James is saying, that you become guilty of the full force of the law if you only offend in one point. And you may have been great in other areas, but this, if this point you fall down, well, then it's, it's, a, it's a real problem area that we need to address and need to look at. And this, by the way, we're going to talk about the issue between law and grace in a moment. But actually, this does apply to us as believers because it's saying, you know, you may be great as a Christian and you may tick all these boxes and do all these things. But, you know, if you show partiality, well, actually, you're failing. OK, now he goes on and says, we will clarify this as we go forward. For he says, uh, for he said that uh, for he that said, do not commit adultery, said also do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. Of course, James is using quite an extreme example here, but just making the point. You can't say, well, I I'm keeping the law and then find that actually in these areas, you're not keeping the law. You're guilty of breaking the law is, is very simply what he's saying. And then he says this, hopefully this ties it all together. He says, so speak ye and so do, then this is to us as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. All right. Now you're thinking to yourself, hopefully that, well, aren't we judged by the, the completed work of Christ? We're not judged by any law. We're now free from the law, are we not? Isn't that what Paul tells us in Galatians and elsewhere? Well, yes, it is exactly right. And James isn't contradicting what Paul's saying. He's making a very important statement here. Let me read that again. So speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. That's how James refers to the law. So literally this, the liberty that we have, we can live according to the law without being subject to it. Let me read that again. The liberty we have uh, is that we can live according to the law without being subject to it we're not in any way or shouldn't be in any way fearful of the penalty of breaking the law because that has been paid for in christ that doesn't mean that that which is in the law is null and void to us okay we're free from the bondage of the law but not from the wisdom and the counsel therein and remember jesus came to fulfill the law john trapp um back in the 
Thomas Virgin um, made these comments. He said, it is also called the law of liberty because it, because it is freely and willingly kept of the regenerate, you and I, to whom it is no burden or bondage. All right. So what James is really saying is that the law gives us great instructions about how we should care for each other. I mean, there's so much in the law about the way we should conduct ourselves, the way we should treat people, not putting stumbling blocks in people's way, you know, and so on. Uh, And loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. You know, these are the ideas that Jesus emphasizes. And it's simply saying that we can't say as believers, well, we're not under the law and walk away from it. We're not under the power of the law. But the wisdom of the council should absolutely apply to our lives. And we should wear them as a um, uh, something that, that, that keeps us on this, this path that God would have us walk so that we're walking in a way that's pleasing to him. Now, again, to, to try and pin this together, Oswald Chambers makes this comment in his great book, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Jesus Christ demands that the heart of a disciple be fathomlessly pure. And unless he can give me his disposition, his teaching is tantalizing. If all he came to do was to mock me by telling me to be what I know I can never be, I can afford to ignore him. But if he can give me his own disposition of holiness, then I begin to see how I can lay my account with purity. Jesus Christ is the sternest and the gentlest of saviors. Well, Oswald Chambers is saying is that all the things that the law tells us, the things that Jesus takes to the next level in the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, they are the things that we should be adopting, we should be living by, but not by works in that sense, not by striving, not out of a sense of duty to the law, but simply by working out what God has worked in, the grace that God gives us to allow us to live in the way he calls us to live. And then James says, for he shall have judgment without mercy that has shown no mercy and mercy rejoices over judgment. Right? It's a really stern warning that James puts in here. He says, for he shall have judgment without mercy. If you're not prepared to show mercy, if you show partiality, if you are judging people based upon their position or the way they look or whatever else, you know, these kind of things. James is saying that's the way that you will be dealt with. Now, it's interesting. Because when we go to Matthew 18, we have a great lesson in grace. Let me read this to you. I'm sure you're familiar, but let me read it anyway. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. You and I generally don't know what a talent is, so let me try and help you. 10,000 talents is basically this 300 denarii was one year's wage. Okay, at the time of Jesus in the Gospels, one talent was equivalent to 15 years of wages. 15 years wages was one talent, all right? So uh, Josephus uh, in his writings tells us that uh, 800 talents was the yearly tax on Israel by Rome. It's a huge amount. Um, So that's why people were taxed so that they could simply pay the Roman government what they needed to and so on. If you work this out, uh, you're looking at 15 years wages times 10,000 okay it's it's enormous 150,000 years of labor were effectively owed to the king by this individual now of course this is a parable that Jesus is giving us but he's trying to illustrate a point and the point is that the one who owed this debt is absolutely out of his depth and there is no way he can pay it but we go on it says for as much as he had not to pay his lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that they had and payment to be made by the way that is what sin does it will root out your increase as it says in job it will cost you everything um but we go on and it says the servant therefore fell down and worshipped him saying lord have patience with me i will pay thee all now that's the preposterous statement there's no way he could pay him all but he's just begging and pleading because he knows he had absolutely nothing with which to pay of course we see the bigger picture here uh, of the debt that we owe because of our sin and the grace that god showed to us but then we go on then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. By the way, that loosed there uh, is the word uh, apulio. It literally means to fully free. Or another way we could put that is grace. Okay, so he literally forgave him the entire debt, completely set him free and at liberty. No longer to worry about this debt. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us the grace you are saved through faith and not of yourself is the gift of God. 
Uh, this man didn't earn this this pardon, didn't earn this this gift, but his debt is wiped clean. It's again, it's the gift of God that has forgiven us, that's wiped our slate clean. And again, it's not of works. This man could never have achieved even what he pr- proposed to do, uh, lest any man should boast. Back in Matthew 18, verse 28. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. Okay, so very harsh now. Just to cut this in context, 100 pence is about the equivalent of 15 pounds. All right, in today's money. You you get the idea. Uh, Just a very small debt owed, uh, and he's saying, I want that now. Now, he's just been given, uh, forgiven a tremendous debt that he could never have paid, and this is his response. He goes out now uh, and asks this money of this this, uh, debtor to him. And his fellow servant fell down on his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Now, in all probability, he would have been able to make that payment at some point if he'd been given chance. But verse 30 says, And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. And you think, how cruel and how harsh this individual. But let me ask you the question, was he legally allowed to do this? Well, yeah, actually he was, because the individual owed him this money. He was absolutely entitled to go and ask for it. But of course, there's a bigger principle here. Because in Romans 10, verse 4, we're told that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. In other words, once we've been saved by grace, once we've been forgiven that debt, then the legal system ends for us. That means we cannot apply it either. If it has been ended, we can't then dip back in and take the bits we want to use to our advantage, just as this individual is doing in the parable. Okay, In Christ, once we are saved, the law comes to an end. Okay, So we can't then call on the law to get what we want, to get revenge or justice or whatever else. Galatians 3 says, are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now made, be, uh, now made perfect in the flesh? You know, we've been born again of the spirit of God by God's grace. Now, that's how our new life has begun. We can't dip back into the, the fleshly way or the, the system that was with the law to be completed. Of course, in Matthew 6, uh, that prayer uh, that Jesus taught the disciples to pray, this great model of prayer, uh, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, the verse goes on and says, for if you will forgive, Jesus said this, for if you will forgive uh, men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now, it's not saying that you could be saved and not forgive somebody and then lose your salvation. We've made this clear. We've gone through these scriptures a number of times recently that salvation is secure. What it's simply saying is that if you're in a position where you're not forgiving somebody else, well, then the reality is that you've not become a recipient of grace. You've not been saved. You're still in that unregenerate place because anybody that is born again by default will show the grace that God has put in. And this is a reminder that this is how we should be living so that we go to God. We ask for that grace daily. Going back to Matthew 18. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry. They just couldn't believe the, the attitude of this man and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. And then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all thou, thou, thou debt, um, because thou desirest me. Should not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. Now, I thought this had been written off. Well, apparently God requires the account of that which is past, is what we're told in Ecclesiastes. And this individual, although this, this offer had been made, clearly he hadn't come to that place of the law ending in his life and wanted to apply the law. And so likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts, notice, forgive not everyone, his brother, their trespasses. Ephesians chapter 4 again just says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be you kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another. See, that's the key. We should be forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. In the same way you've been forgiven, you've been shown grace, you are to show grace to others. You have come to the end of the law in your life. It no longer has power over you, but that means you can't use it to have power over another either. 2 Timothy 2.1 says, Therefore, my son, be strong in the grace 
that is in Christ Jesus. This is the new standard by which we live. We have been shown grace. We're to be strong in that grace and we're to show that grace to others. And that, coming back full circle, applies to the way we view other people. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were aliens from the Commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers. We were lost. And God still reached out to us. And that's how we should be to other people. No, it's not showing any partiality, any favoritism because of people's attire. Finally, Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That find that grace that we can show to others as well as just the grace that we need ourselves. Verse 14. James says, What is a prophet, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? Well, this is a, a bit of a, a question, isn't it? James asking the question, can faith save you? Well, if I asked any of you that question, I'd bet the, the answer you'd all give me is, well, yeah, faith can save us. James is kind of arguing that point and saying, actually, is that true? Can just faith save you? Now, this is why there are many commentators that say that James and Paul were contrary to each other in the things that they were saying. But that's not the case. Let me just read these comments from David Guzik. James did not contradict the Apostle Paul, who insisted that we are saved not of works, but by, of course by grace. James merely clarifies for us the kind of faith that saves. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works, but saving faith will have works that accompany it. As the saying goes, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. It has good works with it. That's a really important point. Let me just read that last one again. Faith alone saves. Statement. Period. Full stop. But the faith that saves is not alone. Okay, so the faith that we have to express is not a faith that is just isolated, just on its own. That faith has works that accompany it. It has good works with it, as David Guzik says. So Paul understood also the necessity of works improving the character of our faith. In Ephesians 2.10, he wrote this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So Paul says that we should have works accompanying that faith, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Titus 3.8, he says, This is a faithful saying, that these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. So Paul is saying, just as James is saying, if we are saved, if we have faith, that faith will have with it good works, or it is not genuine faith. Adam Clark makes this comment. He says, can faith save him? That is his profession of faith. For it is not said that he has faith, but he says, I have faith. The point that Adam Clark's trying to make there is quite simple. What he's saying is that the people that would say, well, I have faith and that's enough. They're simply saying the words they have faith, but there's no demonstration that faith is real. He does actually have genuine faith. He's just making a statement, I have faith. Okay, so that's the idea that, that Adam Clark's putting across. Spurgeon is reported to have said, grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. Goes to the point earlier about not forgiving others. If you don't forgive others, then truly you've not been a recipient of God's grace. You know, if you're going to show partiality, the question is, have you, have you genuinely been a, a recipient of God's grace yourself? And this is the challenge. This is the, the, the whole idea that James is bringing out here to really examine ourselves and say, is our faith genuine? Is our walk with the Lord genuine and true? Goes on and says, verse 15, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be you warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? What use is it? Now, if you see someone in need, he gives us two extreme examples. But, you know, hypothetically saying, you know, if you saw that situation, but you did nothing, well, what use is it? And so he concludes and says, even so, faith, if it hath not worked, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. And he says, well, show me your faith without your works in other words you can't if you if you haven't got works you, you're telling me you really don't have faith if your faith is genuine there will be works because you'll be trusting god and i will show you he says my faith by my works in other words i'll demonstrate that my faith is genuine by the things i do again david guzik says this the appeal of james is clear and logical we can't see someone's faith but we can see their works you can't see faith without works 
but you can demonstrate the reality of faith by works. And then verse 19 of chapter 2, James says this, Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. James now is going to use a quite an extreme example to make the, 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 the clarification very apparent between just believing something or having faith in something and actually letting it take hold of you. All right. So having genuine faith, which will produce work. Uh, the the word, by the way, that we have there, the, the devils also believe and tremble. It's the only time that word appears in the New Testament in the Greek. And it literally means to shudder, to be struck with extreme fear, to be horrified. I just kind of like that to know that the, the devils, the, the powers of darkness, principalities and powers tremble. OK, as they think of God. But let me just point out something here that their theology is great. You see, the the devil and the, the principalities and powers of darkness, they believe there's God. They're not atheists. They're not agnostics. They believe there's a God. They believe that God created the heavens and the earth. They believe that Jesus Christ is the judge of all men, uh, of all things. You know, they believe all the things that we read in Scripture pertaining to the character of God, the nature of God. So there's no question about their uh, theology or their belief. You know, they believe in hell. They understand the reality of hell. They understand that hell is a place of torment. And we see that clearly portrayed in the Gospels with the, the demoniac and the, 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 um, the devils that go into the swine and so on. They understand the reality of hell. So their theology is great. They believe, but they tremble because there is no faith, no saving faith in them. And that's the, the contrast that James is painting for us here. It's no good just to say, I believe. That, that's not, not sufficient on its own. That belief has got to be accompanied with an action to let us see that it's genuine. James carries on. But will thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And now we're just going to get to conclude just two simple examples. Firstly, Abraham. And then secondly, we'll see Rahab mentioned in a moment. Was not Abraham our father justified by works now notice this, when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar. Now, the diligent would have noticed there we have an error because actually Abraham didn't offer Isaac on the altar, did he? But he did. And let me explain why James says this. Because to, as far as Abraham was concerned, from the moment that command was given by God to take his son, his only son, and go to the place that I will show you and offer him there as a burnt offering, that's what we're told in Genesis 22 from the moment that command came isaac was as dead to abraham abraham had decided and there was no going back that he was going to be obedient to god and take his son as far as abraham was concerned isaac really had been offered as a sacrifice which is another one of these wonderful pictures that it was three days from that point until he received him back to life again that three days three nights thing once again we see it played out through scripture a number of times um, just as as Jesus was three days, three nights, uh, Abraham, his son, was for three days dead to him before being effectively brought back and given to him again, brought back to life. So that's why James says that. He says, seest thou uh, how faith wrought his works, and by works was his faith made perfect. You see, the works accompanied the faith to show that the faith was genuine. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and this is wonderful. And it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. And so James says, you see how that by works a man is justified and not only by faith. And he says, likewise also, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she'd received the messages and had sent them out another way? Of course, take us back to the time in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua, the situation with Jericho, the spies had gone in, they stayed in Rahab's house, they'd, she'd hidden them in the loft, then they'd left, and they told her, look, dangle that scarlet cord from the window, and then when we come to destroy the city, we will remember you, we'll save you, whoever's in the house with you. And of course, Rahab demonstrates her faith by works, by physically putting that cloth, that, that cord out of the window and no doubt bringing her, her household into the house with her so that she would be saved. Her faith had works accompanying it. And this is the point that James is making. That for us as believers, we can't just say we have faith. That faith has got to be seen by the fruit that we produce. So the question, the challenge to you and I this morning is where is the fruit in our life? Can other people see it? Because they should be able to. It should be the expression, the outward expression of that inward faith. That others should see in us a genuineness. 
You know, lots of things you can fake in this world. Lots of things you can try and pretend. You can't fake genuineness. And when it comes to our faith, people should see it. They should see that it's real in the way that we act or the way that we respond. The way that others would quite happily mock somebody who seems inferior or less able. But as Christians, we should never be party to that. We should always stand up for those that are less privileged or less able. We should always support, encourage, help uh, and so on. That should be a totally different kind of mindset and character. And then we conclude by verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead. Okay, when when a body dies, the spirit leaves uh, and the, the body's that's it. The body's dead. It has no life without the spirit. So faith without works is dead also. Now, of course, there's a, 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 there's a hypothetical here because James is really saying that if you are saved, there will be works. We've been created to produce those works. If we abide in Christ, as John tells us in his gospel, we will produce fruit and our fruit will remain. And so the, the reminder of the challenge is to be kind of fruit inspectors of our own life and say, OK, where is the fruit? I know my faith's genuine. I know that I've been saved. So where is the work? Where are the things that God is doing? And we need to be aware of it. We need to be conscious of it. And we need to be asking the Lord to do those things through us as that we become witnesses. Jesus spoke of us doing greater works than the things he did. Now, that is demonstrated uh, by our faith, by the th- fact that we do things to show others the love that we have for God by our actions. Next week, we'll move into chapter three. Please read ahead. Let's just bow our hearts and pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time this morning. We thank you that we've been able to study these things. Lord, imply the, uh, sorry, impress them upon our hearts, we pray. Uh, Father, may we not be uh, false in the way that we uh, conduct ourselves, but Lord, let our faith be seen by showing works by being willing to step out, to do things, Lord, for your glory, for your kingdom. Lord, help us to look out for those that are disadvantaged in any way. And Lord, although the world may put them down, though the world may judge them, Lord, may we not look at the outward uh, to judge the inward, but may we, Father, look with the eyes that you have and look at the heart of people and recognize that great wealth is not in the things that we acquire or possess in this life, but it's in that faith that is genuine, that is seen by our works. Lord, just help us to fully comprehend and live these things in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.